What's up, everybody? It's Michael from the Honest Youth Pastor back with another sermon review. Today, we're going to be looking at Destiny Church. Um, Stephen Chandler, that's his name. Stephen Chandler is the pastor you can see here on the screen. Or if you're listening, you'll hear him here in a minute. Um, don't know a lot about Destiny Church, honestly, other than what I looked up on Outreach Magazine. It is the fastest growing church in America as of uh, last year, so 2020. Fastest growing church in America. It was founded in 2011. So they're coming up on their 10-year anniversary, and uh, that's pretty much all the information I have. This particular sermon that we're watching is from February 22nd uh, of this year, so it was preached, uh, what, like about a week ago? So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I did not think it would be the fastest-growing church in 2020, but apparently, according to Outreach Magazine, it is. So one thing that I want to mention here, uh, well, actually two things. So the first thing is, in case you're new here, the sermon reviews are not to uh, be like, hey, this pastor is horrible. Look at their spirituality. You know, there's other people that are better. Um, it is to say, hey, if we walk into this church and we're new and we sit down, or if we walk into a similar church and we sit down and we hear a sermon, we want to know, um, you know, we want to know how to pick things up. What are the red flags? Are there good things? Are they using the text correctly? Like, all of that's crazy important. So, uh, and on that note, I'm going to grab my Bible real quick. It's beside me so that I have that with me and we can look at it. And the idea here is to say, um, what's good, what's bad? Are they using the text correctly? Are they not using the text correctly? Uh, it's all incredibly important to look at those things. So that's the first thing. Secondly, uh, every other sermon review I have ever done, I have watched the sermon multiple times before I've done sermon reviews. So I can kind of you know, see if maybe I missed things the first couple times around, because that happens quite a bit. This one I'm not, so I haven't watched this at all. This is the first time you're watch you're like you're watching this with me. So we're going into this uh, as if uh, we're just visiting this church together for the first time. So uh, let's see. There's going to be some things that I probably will miss. Um, so feel free to comment in the comment section if I if I, if something he says uh, is good or bad, and I'm like I didn't catch it at all. Um, make sure you leave that in the comment section. Secondly, this sermon without the, my commentary will be in the comments or will be in the description below. So you can watch it totally without my babbling mouth going the whole time. Cause I have a tendency to stop a lot and, uh, add comment, which is kind of the point of this. And, um, one thing you do need to know is that the speed is at 1.5, like all the other sermon reviews so that we can get th through this thing a little bit quicker. This, uh, sermon looks to be about 55 minutes long. And we don't want this video to be forever long. So on that note, I'm going to shut up and we are going to start this sermon and we're going to kind of see, hey, let's see how, how, how we doing. Let's go. Luke chapter two, Luke chapter two, verse 41. It says this, every year, Jesus's parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now, after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Now, don't be hard on Mary and Joseph. They were traveling with a bunch of relatives. They just figured, you've been there, you went to the mall, and your kid's like, can I go uncle? Can I go auntie? Or what? They just assumed Jesus was uncle and auntie. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why are you searching for me? Jesus was a smart mouth. Why are you searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Leave it up. Let me just pause it here. Who was Jesus' father? Who was Jesus' other father? 
Joseph. Here is Joseph looking for Jesus. And he says, don't you know I have to be in my father's house? And he wasn't in Joseph's house. He was just like, yeah, you my daddy, but I have another father. Let me just pause here. It takes a real man to raise his children. Any man can have kids. It takes a real father to raise his children. It is the heart of God to raise somebody else's children. Like, these aren't even my biological kids, but because I have a passion and a heart of God, I'm kidding. That's what Joseph, he said, this is my biological son, but because I've been mandated by God, this is my assignment. I'm going to raise this boy as my, there is nothing closer to the heart of God. He says, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient. Somebody say obedient. Obedient to them. Okay, a couple things. I'm not sure where he's going with this, but the, uh, the sermon title is Three Complicated Questions. So I'm assuming that this plays into the sermon title at some point. Uh, second thing there. Um, I, I agree with this point that like, uh, in the sense that it, it's a whole different kind of man that raises kids that aren't his, um, it's a whole different dynamic, uh, as far as, you know, there's a lot of stuff that plays into that. Uh, but he's saying that Joseph understood that. And then the next verse specifically says that, uh, they did not know <laughs> what he was talking about. So those, I mean, I get, I get what he's going with it, but to say that Joseph knew that and then, um, and then the text specifically says he doesn't, didn't understand what he was saying. So anyway, I, I, I realized that I had failed to mention the sermon title. So just so we kind of have some sort of understanding of where he might be going with this. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Another quick caveat. Uh, if God likes you, but people don't, you're not godly. Let me say it again. If God likes you, but people don't, you're not godly. Because the that doesn't make any sense at all. But let's see where he's going. Goal is to gain favor with God and man. Now, if everybody likes you and God can't stand you, you're going to help. So you need to figure that one out first. <laughs> make that the first priority. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful. We're thankful for this opportunity to be in your presence with your children. God, this is family. God, you said that nothing can stand against us because you are for us. When the enemy tries to flood us, God, you're going to raise up a standard against him. God, we're grateful. We're thankful. And I pray in this moment that you would take these words. You'd make them supernatural. You should heal. You should transform. You give vision. We'll be ever so careful to give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Come on, Baltimore. Somebody shout amen. Good deal. So we're in week three. Somebody say week three. Week three of a series called It's Complicated. It's Complicated. We're talking about relationships. The first week we talked about friendships. Last week we talked about love and romance. And I've already heard that some people, particularly men, are manipulating last Sunday's message. And you're using it out of context. Some of your wives or girlfriends went home and said, hey, we don't, we don't cuddle like we used to. We, we don't hold hands like we used to. And some of you men are like, that's so stage one. We are not in stage one anymore. That was not the point of the message. You failed last week's test. Go back, take it again. Do not collect 200. Today, we're going to be talking about something a little bit different. I have a message called three complicated questions. Three. Com okay, so hold on. I, I mean, I'm just coming in again. So some of this is going to be a little raw, not real well thought out. So forgive me in that. But if I'm walking into this church... And I sit down, apparently I find out that they're going through, uh, it's complicated, dealing with relationships and friendships and things like that. And then you say from the pulpit, hey, last week some of you guys totally misunderstood and took out of context what I said. Now, apparently, if I'm taking anything from what he said last week, it was that he had like stages within relationships, perhaps. And he said stage one was cuddling. So apparently they were mis. The point is this. If there was that much of a misunderstanding, like maybe he's joking, maybe he's just kind of like, you know, ha ha, you know, you guys relationships. Uh. Uh, maybe he's just like an icebreaker, perhaps. Um, that's one thing. But if there were like serious misunderstandings, uh, maybe he should address that more. 
I mean, not to say that any of us are like a hundred percent great at communicating ideas and making sure people understand them, but like it needs more of a, a context than, Hey guys, you misunderstood what I said. So you failed the test. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Like, again, I might be reading too much into this. There's probably going to be a lot of that in this video, but if there was actual misunderstanding, like pastorally, you need to address that. So that the men in your church know what you meant then. Um, I mean, if you're going to go a whole relationship series, which apparently is the new hotness right now, because, you know, Mike Todd make that the thing. Um, if you're going to do that, then at least do it decently. Anyway, I, I didn't hear that sermon, so I can't critique it a whole lot, but let's keep going. Three complicated questions. Complicated question. And here's the thing. There's two things about relationships. They're painful and they're complicated. If you've lived long enough, you've experienced relationships that are just, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, there's a painful aspect of it. And why is that? Because it's complicated. You ever looked at somebody else's relationship and you can figure out the solution really easily? It's just like, you're jacked up, he's jacked up, fix it. You're just a bad parent, like stop it. Like looking at somebody else's relationship, it's so easy to fix, but when it comes to us, it is complicated. Today I wanna to talk about the complications of raising children. We're gonna talk about parenting. And if I preach today's message correctly, accurately, and in the anointing of God, everybody will walk out of this service believing in whooping your kids. That is the goal. That is the goal of today's message. Now, some of you are saying, Pastor, I'm 60 years old. I have a 40-year-old child. I said what I said. Maybe. <laughs> One of the reasons why I kind of held back the, the topic or the title is because as soon as people hear about parenting, honestly, so many people check out. Now, some of you, maybe 50% of our church, you have children and you're just like, can you, can you help me out or stay out of my home? I don't need your advice. I'm doing fine by myself or whatever it may be. But 50% of you are just like, hey, my, my kids are grown. Like, it's too late. I already messed them up and now they're on their own. And if, if I, my prayers are answered, they're gonna move out my basement by this weekend and then I'm really not gonna have nothing to do with them. Others of you, you're just like, hey, I, I, I don't have children. Uh, that's kind of in the future or whatever it may be. But here's what I've discovered. If you don't have to get ready, you stay ready. When something comes, you're not asking like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? And as we talked about last week, of the five top things that people argue about in a marriage, children are in the top five. And I'll tell you in a second why. But hear me, if you're not married in the room, if you you're, have kids in your future, now's the time to figure out how you want to lead your family and have that conversation before you put a ring on it. That way, if they say something crazy, you're just like, okay, good to know you. I'm out. I also know when it comes to raising children. It's Though it has nothing to do with the text we're looking at, that is a very good point as far as relationships go to know or to have a general idea about how you want to raise kids and how many kids you want and how you're going to raise them and what that's going to look like. And, you know, you know when we do premarital, when me and my wife do premarital counseling with people all the time, um, luckily most people have talked that out by that point. Because <laughs> if you haven't and you're about to get married, you haven't talked about it, that's kind of a woo, red, red flag. Um, but the idea is that you want to have that conversation way before you have to actually think about that. So that point, though again, has nothing to do with the text. Um, good. Good point. And it's an area that's just painful for so many people. Maybe you've had a child as a parent's worst nightmare that passed away before you did. Maybe you've experienced a miscarriage. Your doctors told you, hey, you and your spouse, you're just never going to be able to have kids. Well, here's what you have to understand. Wherever there's pain, there's God. He said that he is always close to the brokenhearted. And I'll tell you something about Destiny Church. We, we, we got some great areas and we got some weaknesses, but one of the areas that we're good in is pain. You do not have to go through this journey, through this battle by yourself. You have a community of people that want to love you, cover you, and pray for you. Somebody say amen. I actually had a really close friend of mine that over the last four years, him and his wife were battling with infertility. The doctor literally told them, you will never have children. I don't know, sometimes the faith just gets on me. I'm just like, who do you think you are? You can tell me it's unlikely. Don't tell me never, because you don't know. 
We called me up three weeks ago. He said, we've been holding it just so we could get through the first trimester, but we are in the second trimester. We are pregnant. It is a medical miracle. I cannot tell you, even in Destiny Church, how many people, it is their story that a doctor said one thing, but God said something completely different. So wherever you are, and then here's why this message applies to everybody. The last thing is this. You is somebody's kid. <laughs> Pastor, don't remind me. Well, let me remind you of this. You are God's child. As a believer, he said, you've received a spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. When Jesus taught us how to pray, he said, this is how you pray. God up in the sky. Nope. King of the world, creator of heaven and earth. No. He said, here's how you pray. Dad, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We have to remember that we're not just children. We're not just followers of God, but we're children of Almighty God. And just like a physical parent is supposed to parent their child, God, your Father, desires to parent you. So that was an interesting point, and I'm glad he made it in the sense that he's, he, he made a particular point, though he did go over it pretty quick, but I don't care because most of the time now people don't even make the distinction. But he was very careful to, to point out that as believers, we are children of God. Now, the common thing, and I've made a couple memes about this on the page before, and every time I do, like you just get this barrage of comments about we're all God's children. Um, there's a distinct difference, and I'm glad that he at least alluded to it here, that there's a difference about being made in God's image, uh, the Imago Dei, and therefore having value and worth because you, uh, because you are made in God's image. And then there's a totally different thing about being adopted into the family of God and actually being uh, a part of God's family, being a child of God. Those two things are entirely different. We're not going to go into those now because, again, that's not the point of this. But he did make the distinction as he was speaking there that as believers, we are children of God. So that was nice. That was really, um, I, I know sometimes we can just brush over things and assume that, you know, everybody knows that. But it was, it was nice that he at least mentioned that. That was helpful. Um, it was a helpful distinction, at least, even though he didn't bring out both distinctions. He, he clearly, uh, at least from this sermon, I can surmise that he, he believes that uh, only believers are adopted into the family of God. So that helps me. If I'm walking into this church, it helps me at least understand kind of his basic theology uh, on adoption into the family of God by believing in Jesus. So let's keep going. So today I'm gonna help you understand how God be whooping you and you don't even realize it. You think it's the enemy. And how God has covered you and provided you and leading you and all those different good stuff. Now, I don't know what Sesame Street does anymore, but back in the day, Sesame Street used to have a show that's sponsored by a number. Today's show is sponsored by the number five, the number five. Well, today's message has a sponsor. Today's message is sponsored by Destiny Kids. They asked, Pastor, can you preach at least one message this year about raising children? Because we are tired of these people dropping their bad behind kids off in Destiny Kids for an hour and 15 minutes. Then they have a nerve to go to growth track and leave these little aliens in here. And we can't whoop them, and they've never whooped them. So we have to just sit here and, and withhold goldfish from them. So this message is on behalf of Destiny Kids. It's called Whoop Your Kids So We Don't Have To. <laughs> Pray for me. I'm all the way joking. Not really. They really said that. But I do want to say that I'm not preaching this from a place of being an expert. I have two beautiful children. My oldest, oldest is Zoe. My second is Roman. Y'all, Roman nearly got kicked out of Destiny Kids last week. Like I said, wait, what? He pushed the teacher, y'all. This kid, don't laugh. This kid said, listen, I don't even want these little smurfs. Bring on the big one. I got this. All that to say, raising children is complicated. The pastor's kids are ratchet. Pray for them. They got good days, and then they got days they act like their mama. We're trying to pray. Pray for me. The reality is it's complicated. There, there, there's two really painful things in life. Money. That was helpful too. Again, I mean, I don't, his methodology here, I would differ with. I think there's other ways to approach this, but uh, we've talked about this before in case you've never watched uh, or listened to one of the uh, sermon reviews before. Um, there's different methodologies in, in preaching, how to preach, kind of what to focus on, how to start, those sort of things. Everybody has different methodologies. 
there is no great methodology or better methodology. Um, I think there's more helpful methodologies and I wouldn't necessarily adhere to the way he's doing it. Um, but I think there's, there's, again, this is why some, though I wouldn't particularly use his methodology as far as how he's opening it, how he's, he's kind of entering into the sermon. I think some of the things he's saying here are helpful in the sense that like he, he admitted, Hey, my kids are not perfect either. So I'm not up here trying to tell you how to make perfect kids because all I got to do is look at my kids and know my kids aren't perfect. And I think that's nice. It's a very um, uh, kind of a transparent thing to say as a pastor to be like, look, like no one has this locked down. The point is that we're going to look at scripture or I'm hoping we're going to look at scripture and see that, hey, there's there's a scriptural biblical way to do this. And that's the point. As believers, as Christians, we're supposed to look at the scripture and this is how we uh, do our parenting. This is how we raise our kids. This is what it looks like. Now, we haven't got there yet. I'm hopeful that that's where he's going, even though that Luke chapter two is, I don't know if I, I wouldn't have picked this uh, for a parodying passage, but uh, we'll see what he does with it. But I do like the, a couple things that he's done here in the regards to saying, hey, I'm not perfect. Never claimed to be perfect, but um, we obviously have some room <laughs> to grow every one of us as parents and as kids. So, um, so far, again, none of it's bad. We're 11 minutes in at least we've read scripture. We haven't really dove into it. Um, but again, methodology, I'm going to give some room for grace here. Let's see what we do with the scripture we read. Me and kids. I say, hey, today's message is on tithing. <laughs> or I'm going to help you be a better parent. I'm a good parent myself. But can we be honest? Two lessons we never got leaving our homes, most likely. How to manage finances and how to raise godly kids. We got examples. Here's the problem. You will never marry someone who had the same example of raising kids as you did. You know how they say opposites attract? And then you get married and opposites attack? <laughs> and you realize, how could you be more different from me? And how could you be more wrong? This is the only way that you do it. You'd be amazed. You, maybe you grew up in one of those houses where if you looked across the room funny, you got whooped. <laughs> say something. I'll give you something to cry about. If you grew up in one of those, I'll give you something to cry about home. You're like, I'm crying right now. Why do you need to give me something else to cry about? <laughs> and then others of you were raised in homes where you got to express your feelings. You had an adult that said, so tell me how you feel. Okay, and how did that make you feel? My wife is like, why do you talk so much? And I said, because I haven't been able to express my feelings for 21 years of my life. I got a lot of feelings pent up and I got to get them all out. And then you get these two opposite experiences and you bring them together and you got to raise those smurfs and here we go. And then so many of us get caught up on the fact of, this is the way my parents did it. And it may not have been the best way, but they did the best that they can. Can I, can I get up in your living room for a second? This is going to be hard to hear. Sometimes the best they can do just wasn't good enough. And that's a harsh reality. We judge everybody else by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. Nobody wants a president that said, I did the best I could. Nobody wants a police officer that says, I did. No, no, no. We need you to do the job. And sometimes we feel by saying that our parents didn't do it God's way, and so we feel like we're dishonoring them. No, you're honoring them by keeping their value in your life and, and keeping their, 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 their esteem in your life. But just because it was the way that you were raised doesn't mean it was the best way. And it doesn't mean that it's God's way. So here's what I'm asking. I'm asking church that we would be teachable according to God's word. What does teachable mean? Will so I don't, like I said, I've never heard of this guy before. And just so I can be transparent, anytime I see backgrounds like this, I automatically assume certain things. <laughs> but so far, he's been doing pretty good in the sense that, I mean, he's, he's being vulnerable. He is pushing in where, where I think it's, it's very helpful, especially with what he's going to be talking about, to kind of press in a bit. Uh, he said that we judge everybody else by their actions, but ourselves by our intentions. 
that's very helpful again i I hope this doesn't here's the thing a lot of things he's saying is they're very helpful but they're not like we're not looking at the bible anybody could get up and say what he's saying right now um which is the difference between you know uh, looking at the word of God and, and exegetically working through the text versus just being like really wise and saying wise things. Um, it's not that like saying wise things is wrong or bad. Like the things he said so far are very helpful. I think they're, they would be helpful to, to a non-believer as well. Um, so that's great. Are we going to get in the text? Like what makes this distinctively Christian? right? What, what, what makes this distinctively, like, if I don't know Jesus, I'm not going to be able to do it this way. If I don't know Jesus, then I'm going to disagree with the, what you're, what you're saying here. Now, again, it's not to, it's not to make people disagree or make people hate you. Uh, but the idea is that Christians do things distinctively different, which I think is what he's, he's alluding to here, which is good that just because this is the way your parents raised you doesn't mean it's the godly way, which is what he just said. So there's hope here. Um, He's just taking a minute to get to it, but that's fine. That's fine. But the idea here is that um, the distinction I want to make here, as far as, again, these are to say, hey, when we sit down and we go into a church, what are the red flags? What are the good things? We do need to be very careful that we don't go, oh, that was really wise and go, well, that was good preaching because the one, one doesn't equal the other. Okay. And I just want to make that clear. I have hope that he's actually going to get in scripture because he just said before I paused it, there's a difference between raising kids as best as you could and raising kids the scriptural right way, which is great. And so again, I think here in a minute, hopefully we're going to get into the scripture and it's going to be great. But I think we also need to be able to train our, our ears and our, our, our minds to be able to pick up on things that just because they sound good and what he has said is good, doesn't mean that they are defaultly scriptural or biblical, if that makes sense. So let's keep going. Got hope. Willing to relearn what we think we already know. I know how to do that. I get it. But would you be willing to relearn? This verse jumped out of the other this message. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8, it says this. Though he, being Jesus, was a son. And when it says a son, it doesn't mean he was Mary and Joseph's son. It means he was the son of God. In other words, even though Jesus was God, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, if, if you're listening to this real quick, I just want to point something real quick out. Just a, a pet peeve of mine <laughs> uh, is when, when pastors skip back and forth between different translations simply because that particular translation says something in a particular way that they like it being said in, right? So he opened up, if you're not watching this, you wouldn't, I mean, if you're just listening to the podcast version, you wouldn't know this, but uh, he opened up with the NIV. Now he's in the NKJV. Um, I'm imagining we'll probably jump around to cover up. The reason it's a pet peeve is so different translations do word things differently, but let's just be honest and like tell people that in the sense that if, if for example, the NIV doesn't say this verse the way you like it, well, why then? Like, let's dig in and say, okay, why did the NIV translators translate this verse in a different way or, or use different wording, for example, than the NKJV? Like, is it that different? Because if it's that different and it changes the overall meaning, then we have a way bigger problem. But if not, like, what were the words that were changed then? Like, what what one word did they, did they use instead of another word? And why did they do that? Like, there's a lot more to this that we're not going to be able to get to in this video. But the idea is when you're jumping around from translation to translations, it can get pretty confusing. Um, because sometimes translation uh, translation committees specifically use one word and not the other. And it's interesting to know why they did that. 
So anyway, not incredibly important, but something that if you are at a church and it's, you know, there's verses on the screen, for example, or if you're in the pew in your Bible, obviously the Bible that you're hopefully using uh, is a different translation than maybe that they're using, that you're going to pick up on those differences. And it's something to at least take note of because I have heard messages before. I'm not saying he's doing this, but I'm saying I have heard messages before where they use the one word that was translation, translated differently and they make an entire point off of that. Whereas in another version, that word was different than it was just enough different because, again, the translators, I don't know, they saw the tone or the, you know, the context of the whole of the section they're looking at. So they choose to use one word and not the other. Um, it's just it, it can be it can become problematic. If you make a whole point off of one word that one translation translation committee used versus another translation committee, again, it's a whole whole discussion that can go into this. Um but it's a pet peeve when you jump around like that because it, it can be problematic. So anyway, he's in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Let's keep going. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation by all who obey him. One of the problems with us as believers is we read the Bible wrong. We read the Bible back to front, meaning we know how the story ends. David kills Goliath. So when a 16-year-old boy says, let me go fight this guy with five stones and a sling, we're like, oh, he's going to win because we see the end of the story. But if we understood that it wasn't guaranteed that he was going to win and he was still going to go, it would completely change the faith that he exhibited in that moment. That's a really good point. Context. Mm. Because we know that Jesus died on the cross, that he healed the sick, raised the dead, turned water into wine, and was the creator of the universe, we miss the fact that he was also a baby that did not fast forward zero to 30. And for 30 years, he lived in obscurity, submitted to earthly parents. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible said that Jesus learned obedience by what he suffered. Now, are you saying that Jesus got whoopings? I don't know. You got to talk to Joseph about that. But the Bible says that he learned obedience. Now, all you theologians that like to send emails, you can send all of those emails. Um, where should I send them? Send them, send them to Darius. <laughs> now, there is no way that Jesus learned obedience because he was the perfect one. He never said. That's my pew theologian voice. That word obedience does not mean that he was disobedient. That word learned doesn't mean, forgive me, doesn't mean that he had to figure it out. That word learned means that he experienced for the first time. Before Jesus came to earth, he didn't have to obey anybody because he was God. And here on earth, he had to learn what it was. Could you imagine obeying someone you created? Mary talking about, Jesus, go clean your room. I made you. <laughs> Could you imagine how awkward his childhood was? Here's Jesus at the neighborhood pool party, and Mary's like, Jesus, Jesus, what? in the water. Stop walking on the water. Get in the pool. <laughs> like Jesus learned. The Bible says that he suffered and he learned. So I get the joke, but again, it's if I'm walking in here and I don't, again, a pure theologian here, um, if I'm walking into a church, I may not know that story is not accurate. Like the Jesus, Jesus did walk on water, right? Later we have that account. Um, we have no account of what he did in his childhood. Cause again, not the point, but, um, we do have the verse, for example, that Stephen used, which was about, you know, the obedience and the learn. And I think his point there is, is good. Uh, he does make the distinction between uh, learn and obey versus disobey. Like, so I think he covered himself fine in the fact that Jesus never sinned. I think he, he seems to believe that. Uh, and I think he, he very quickly, without going into a lot of detail, said, hey, don't send me the emails. This is what I believe. I think he covered that fairly well. You could disagree with me, whatever. But I think, I mean, he covered that pretty well. Uh, but when you throw in funny stories, like, again, I don't have a problem with stories <laughs> as long as they're productive. I'm just saying that when I'm looking out into the crowd as I'm preaching, as I'm a pastor, I have to be mindful that you may have no idea about anything in the Bible. 
So if I throw something out, even though it's a joke, I have to be very cognizant of the fact that you might take that seriously, right? You may. So again, not that anybody there maybe took Stephen seriously and was like, hey, uh, Jesus must have walked on water when he was a kid. Uh, I think most people would understand that that wasn't a thing. But again, you just have to be cognizant of what people are hearing. So let's keep going. Learn through his suffering obedience that he learned wisdom. Here's the point of your message. Your child ain't Jesus. <laughs> so if Jesus had to learn obedience, how much more are children? But here's what we miss out. And some of this is kind of 21st century Northeast stuff where we just live in a time in history where everybody's trying to build an empire. Everybody's trying to be Bonnie and Clyde as if you don't know how the movie ends. Y'all, they died. You don't want to be Bonnie and Clyde. I'm just trying to, you know, build my deal. And, and sometimes we get so ambitious on building that we miss out on the value of family and the blessings of church. Here's what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes. It says if you build something great, but you don't focus on your kids, you'll have no one to live on that legacy. And you would have built something in vain. Here's what the Bible says about children in Psalm 127. It says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Ah. It's curious why he didn't give us the reference for Ecclesiastes. If you're, again, listening to the podcast version, there was... We got Psalms up on the screen now, but we didn't have a reference for Ecclesiastes, so that's just curious. I'm curious why. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. I am telling you, one of the greatest privileges you'll ever have in your life is releasing a child into their destiny. That's I really want to hear this message. I'm past the age of having children, and I don't have kids, or my kids are estranged, and I don't really have much to do with kids right now. If only I could explain to you how many orphans there are, how many people who feel parentless. But they're saying, you don't have to have my DNA, you don't have to have my last name. But if I could just find somebody to put an arm around my shoulder and release me into my destiny. Hey, find you a dream team. Not because we need you to park cars or because we need you to rock babies. Because there's someone in there that needs you to put your, their arm around them and say, hey, your dad may not be following Christ right now. Your mom may not be alive any longer, but I'm here to help push you into the destiny that God has for you. That's why church was always meant to be a family. Okay, so on that, not that he missed an opportunity here, but I think a really good opportunity could have been found in Titus chapter 2. I mean, all of Titus chapter 2 is all about what he just talked about. Older men teaching younger men, older women teaching younger women. Like Titus 2 is the picture of what he just described. Of like that, it doesn't matter if they're your kids or not. It doesn't matter. Like if you are part of the family of God, like the, the point of, uh, uh, even though you don't have those kids in your house anymore, if you're an older man or an older woman, you are to, I mean, as your faith lived out is shown that it's lived out by teaching the younger generation the things you already lived through and you already know. So what he just, I mean, again, he doesn't make that reference, but that's a great connection to what he just said. Titus 2, go read that if your kids aren't at home anymore, if you don't have anybody to pour into. Like Titus 2 gives you the directions on exactly what you're supposed to be doing and how you're supposed to be teaching. Like it's a great passage. Go read that. Three quick questions, three quick questions that every child needs answered. Every child needs these three quick questions answered. By the way, if you're a 79-year-old child, you're still asking these questions. The first one is this. Do you want me? Do you want me? The first question every child is asking, even if they don't know how to put it in words or articulate it, the first thing that they're asking is, do you want me? Another way of saying it is that, do you love me? I'll be honest with you. If my daughter Zoe came and said, Daddy, do you love me? Do you want me? I'd have two quick reactions. My first reaction is I'd be heartbroken because I'd feel like I failed. Simply by the fact that you have to ask me, do I love you, means that I'm not articulating it properly, I'm not demonstrating it properly, I'm failing as a parent if you have to ask because you should already know. That would be my first emotion. My second emotion would be utter frustration. Do I love you? Do you have shoes on your feet? Come on, anybody good with that? You got, you're naked right now, you got clothes on. What'd you eat for dinner? Look at this room. Dude, this is L-O-V-E. Every time the mortgage comes in, L-O. Come on now. it seems like a dumb question. It's like, you're my kid. You have my last name. Of course I love you. Of course I want you. 
But what we don't understand is two things. As children, they don't see what we see. You're like, do you see all that I'm doing for you? Okay, I'm going to make a prediction. We are 20 minutes into a 55-minute sermon. I did, as I just said not too long ago. I had hope for this sermon. We may bring it back around, but I'm 20 minutes in, and we ain't revisited um, the passage yet. So I'm, I'm a little, one, I'm not, I'm not totally disappointed because I think the Luke 2 passage that he referenced isn't incredibly helpful in regards to parenting because that's not what Luke 2 is about. Um, but we're also not referencing any other scripture. And we've basically taken the, uh, the, dartboard approach, the dartboard approach to preaching at this point, which is just taking like a piece of scripture that ties into my overall idea and we're just throwing darts at the dartboard, hitting scripture wherever it applies. So again, not that the scripture he's used at this point isn't helpful, because I think it is, but it's 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 more of, there's there's two ways of preaching, and we've talked about this before, but in case you're new or you missed those, there's two ways of preaching. There's one where I use scripture as my basis, and everything I say and everything that I teach comes from that particular part of scripture, and then supporting scriptures as needed, um, but it's usually based upon a particular text. The other way of preaching is taking a topic, it's called topical preaching, and then we, we kind of use that topic and then grab whatever scriptures that we need in order to make that sound, to connect it biblical. But sometimes it's very easy, and this is kind of the danger of topical preaching, is take a topic and then I'm just grabbing the things that are applicable or have the word that I like in them and then bringing them to the sermon, even if contextually and exegetically they have absolutely nothing to do with my topic, it makes it sound great and I can make a tie-in so that's, you know, I do that. I don't think that's particularly what he's doing here, um, though I'm concerned <laughs> at this point, 20 minutes into the sermon. Um, again, there's nothing wrong that he's saying here. I think all of this is incredibly helpful overall to, to parents in general. Um, he did tell us we were going to get into how to parent godly, uh, parent from a scriptural basis. Maybe we'll still get there. Again, I'm kind of losing hope. Um, but the idea here is that I do want you to hear me say that I think everything he said up to this point is really good. Like it's, it's helpful. Um, even the point that he's getting into now about your kids asking you if you want them. Like every kid legit asked that. If you have any kids ever, you've been asked that even, I mean, at least once. Uh, even if it's in like a joking passing manner, right? Depending on what age they are. Um, you've been asked that. So it's, I mean, this is, this is not bad information. It's just not a sermon so far. Um, I don't know. Let's keep going. I just wanted to stop and make that, make that distinction. There's there uh, between sermons because some of you that are listening to this maybe have grown up in a church that, um, walks through scripture. Uh, and some of you have grown up in a church that takes topics, and that's what the sermons are. Um, yeah. Anyway, let's keep going. For you? No. No, actually, I don't. All I know is that you leave before I wake up. And when I get home, you're not here. And you tell me it's for me, but I don't see that. I don't understand it. I'm seven. What do you want from me? The other thing is Christians, so often we're blind to the society that we're in. Where it's become a political tool instead of a moral issue. Whether children are wanted or not whether they should be kept or not, whether they've come at a convenient moment or not. You may not realize this, but for the last 40 years, as a nation, we've actually been screaming, we don't want you. So it's actually a valid question of do you want me? Another thing that we don't realize as Christians is that we live every day of our lives on a battlefield. Because we can't see our enemy, 
because it's not an enemy of flesh and blood. We just assume we're good. But the Bible says that there is a thief and he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. His name is Satan. And I know hate is a strong word, but I hate Satan. And here's why I hate him, because he doesn't pick on people his own size. Because Satan is a coward, he has taken the tactic of attacking in infancy what he doesn't want to deal with in maturity. As you look throughout scripture, the nation of Israel is in slavery to Egypt. God says, I'm going to raise up a deliverer through Moses. Satan didn't know who the deliverer was going to come from, so he made a decree through Pharaoh. Hey, every Hebrew boy, two years and over, must be drowned in the river. Because he said, I know God's going to send a deliverer, and I don't know who that deliverer is going to be, but I want to hit him as a baby before he can become a man and do real damage. Fast forward to the New Testament. Remember, there was a star in the sky, and the Magi came and said, we heard that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is coming. Is he in Herod's palace? Herod said, no, he's not here, but when you find him, can you come and tell me? I want to worship him. Next thing you know, there's a decree from Herod through Satan to execute every Hebrew boy again, two years and under, because God was raising up a deliverer, and he said, I don't know which one of these are a deliverer, but I'm going to wipe them all out because I prefer to fight a baby than to fight an adult. And we think for the last 40 years it's been a voting issue or a political issue or a political party. No, the enemy of our soul knows that God is raising up a deliverer in our society. And he said, I don't know which one it is, but I'm going to wipe them all out before they get a shot. You don't have to say amen. Hmm. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, his view on, not just his view on Satan, but his view of the amount of power that Satan has. Um, also, interesting twist at the end there. Um, he's obviously against abortion, which is great. Um, but he seems to have this idea that there is a deliverer that will be raised up in this generation that Satan is trying to kill via abortion so that that deliverer doesn't come. I'm not sure where he's going with that, but this does tell us a lot about his, uh, his escalade eschatological view his view of the end times his view uh of of how much like the power dynamic uh between satan and god um that gives us some insight there there's a lot of questions that come from what he just said um as far as satan working through different people and them not like again there's so much there's so many questions that come from that as far as inerrant sin are they acting on their own is satan driving them is satan the puppet behind them um like he really sets up this cosmic battle between God and Satan. Who can outdo the other one? Who can get there first sort of situation? I mean, that may not be what he believes, but like when I hear that, again, I've, this is a, you and I are listening to this sermon at the same time together for the first time. So I could be missing something that if I were to go back and listen to this a couple of times, I might pick up. But that's what I'm picking up just like off, off the cuff. It's very interesting. I don't know. It's incredibly interesting. The dynamic he has that he's playing out here. Hmm. I don't think I would agree. I wouldn't agree with him on that dynamic, but um, again, we probably have different views of, of the end of es just eschatology in general. Um, the power dynamic between Satan and God. Like there's, there's some things there that seem like we would be different on for sure. I don't think I've ever heard a pastor say that before. Hmm. Anyway, let's keep going. That's just, that's super interesting, especially the twist on the end where he's like, there's somebody being rose up now and Satan's trying to kill him via abortion. That's an interesting concept that he's, I, I don't know. I don't know what he's alluding to there. Hmm. It's the truth. What you have to understand is the enemy is attacking your kids every single day through whispers in their ear. You're not wanted. You're not loved. You're not valued. That's why your parents don't have time for you. That's why they prefer to be on their phone and talk to you. That's why they didn't have time to show up to that practice. That's why they won't help you with their homework. Somebody say, prove it. 
Show of hands. How many people between the age of three and 18, you either considered or attempted running away? Come on, come on. How many, how, come on. <laughs> That's like the entire room. <laughs> My hand is up, by the way. Now, 25% of us who just raised our hands, it's not because we didn't feel wanted. It's because we broke that base. <laughs> and we figured it was safer for me out in those streets than to stay in this house and wait for mom and dad to get back home. I'm out. Some of y'all actually attempted to run away. I got to planning and packing. I never actually did it because here's the thought that crossed my mind at nine years old. Who's going to cut my chicken up? There's nobody out there to cut my chicken up. I'm the only one who can cut my chicken up. Or my mom, okay, I'm going to stay. But literally. I will give him something here. And this is, I mean, he's a good communicator. Like, I can't say he's not. There's been a couple times here that I'm like, that was, that was very insightful. Or that was just, that was like the last thing he said here. That was funny. That was very relatable. Um, I mean, he's definitely a, a gifted communicator for sure. Um, I don't know. Let's keep going. Like, I, I want to have hope for this because he's really good. I mean, I can see why people would want to listen to him. Like, he's just off of this sermon in general. Like, he's easy to listen to. But I don't know how good he is at, you know, exegetically working through the text. Like, what what are... And you're not going to know that unless he does it. So let's, I mean, let's hope that he does it. Let's keep going. It's the enemy whispering in your ear. You're not valued. You're not wanted. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the enemy whispers. So the only way that a whisper can be heard is if there's complete silence. But if there's a voice that is echoing in your children's ear, I love you, I want you, you're valued, you're special, you belong to me, that whisper is drowned out. Do you want me? Last week we talked about how love is demonstrated. Love is demonstrated through hugs and kisses and physical affection. Love is also demonstrated through commitment. Patience. They're kids. Patience. He's only 16. I know he has a mustache. I've been 16 before. He got no common sense, just patience, kindness, gentleness, trust, honesty. Stop lying to your kids. They know you're a liar. <laughs> Perseverance. I'm going to send you with your uncle. No, don't do that. Stick it out because you love him. Luke 2, 48 says this. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And Mary said, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Hear me. If you ever feel like a bad parent, just read your Bible. At least you didn't lose God. You've done some jacked up stuff, but you've never lost the Messiah. Mary and Joseph, y'all, they lost God for four days. You messed up. You go four days, you didn't notice? Nobody pulled on your shirt? And they finally said, we, we miss you. We've been anxiously searching for you. Here's why. Because no matter if it's hugs, kisses, patience, kindness, whatever, love is spelled this way, T-I-M-E. I want you, so I'm going to spend time with you. And here's what I've discovered. The older they get, the more difficult it is to spend time with them. Okay. So he did go back to the Luke passage. Um, he went specifically um, to verse, was it 40? I think he said it was 48. Anyway, we've been searching for you. Oh, well, okay. So here's the difference as far as translation. But uh, so it's verse 48. It looks like he skipped a bit of it, but it said, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you with great distress. So his Bible says anxious, mine says distress. Um, which is great, but then he harps on the point about Mary and Joseph losing Jesus, which at the beginning of the sermon he said, don't be too hard of them. And now he's being hard on them and saying, hey, at least you've... Uh, he's saying, at least you never lost the Messiah. Um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm losing hope here that we're going to do this very well. Um, again, his points are good. Like you need to spend time with your kids. Um, you need to let them know that they're wanted. 
but we're 30 minutes in. We've went to the back to the text once. And exegetically, we've we've totally misunderstood the point that culturally, our culture and the culture that Mary and Joseph are, are, are in currently are is different, is drastically different as far as um, there's a reason that they 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 essentially lost him. Um, and there's a lot of cultural context that goes into that as far as families traveling together, as far as who's watching him, as far as what's acceptable, how old he is, though all those things play into that. I, I don't think we're going to get into that because it's just not the tone of this sermon, but um, that would be a red flag that it seems to be, and I don't want to call it too early here, but we're 30 minutes in, so we only have about 25 minutes left, so we're well over halfway. Um, well, we're at halfway, but uh, we've used one verse, and it's basically, it's not necessarily out of context, but we haven't explained like you know the full behind the scenes of why why they're in the situation they're in let's keep going because when they're nine months they, go, they can't move <laughs> okay nine months they walk in forgive me uh three months <laughs> i remember when zoe was two years old every time i would come home i, I mean nine hour day three hour meetings i got backpack and groceries and i'm walking in and zoe was and she would take about eight steps back and i mean come leaping off the top stairs of our wooden staircase <laughs> i mean just full i'm like i didn't play baseball what are you doing that's when she was two. Now she's four and a half. I walk in the house, and I'm like, Zoe! 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 I walk around the corner, that little no-rent-paying little smurf, sitting on my sofa, watching my cable. Talking about, what's up, Dad? What you bring? I'll give you a what's up. As they grow, and they develop, and they mature, and they have friends and all, it becomes more complicated to spend time. But the harder it is to spend time, the more valuable that time is. I'm 34 years old, and I remember that day that my dad came to my freshman basketball game. He came to a lot of my games, but he worked during the day, and he missed some of them. But I remember he came to this one game, and it was the worst game I'd ever had in my life. Uh, for some reason, varsity was down a player, and they figured they were going to put this freshman soccer player on the varsity basketball team. I get out there. It's the third quarter, first time I stepped on the court. <laughs> it was bad, y'all. It was real bad. We were playing Arlington Baptist School. A bunch of heathens. I mean, they were Christian school my foot. We get out there on the court. The game's going. And somebody on my team, they accidentally passed me the ball. I say accidentally because the coach made it clear, abundantly clear, we do not pass the ball to Steven. But for some reason, he made a mistake. He thought because I had the same jersey as him that I could help him win this game. He was sadly mistaken. He passed me the ball. Step number one, I caught it. It was good. It was good. We were on a good, good track. And next thing I know, the crowd starts screaming. They go, 10, 9, 8, 7. I said, this is my moment. I heard the Eminem song playing in the background. The movement, the moment, I own it. I was like, yeah, let's do this. I didn't even have enough time on the clock to dribble the ball. It was only 10 seconds. I heaved that ball towards that goal. It went over the basket, <laughs> over the backboard, over the ref, into the bleachers. The entire room erupts in laughter. There were three minutes left on the clock. They were just counting down 10 seconds because they knew an idiot had just touched the ball. The room is dying laughing. I looked for my dad. My dad was always strange. He would never sit in the stands with the other parents, probably because he was embarrassed to say he was my father. He was over in the court. I looked at him, and he was the only person in the room not laughing. He was smirking, but he wasn't laughing. And I remember at the end of that third quarter, my dad came over to the bed. My dad never respected any coach that I ever had. He's like, I'm your coach. Look at me, boy. <laughs> he said, you did good. You did good. Okay, next time, let's calm down. Let's dribble the ball. Let's give it to somebody else, okay? You got it. But to this moment, I, I remember the time that he invested. Because time says that I matter to you. Time says that you care. I don't want to get all emo on y'all, but I'm a grown dog old man. I preach to thousands of people every Sunday, y'all. Oh, my gosh, my shit was amazing. It was so good. It changed my life. So I want to hear what you have to say. I wait for my dad to call me after church on Sunday. My dad calls me and says, man, that was a great message. And I'm grateful when you say it. 
when my dad says it's just like, that was a great message. <laughs> that as an adult, how much more is your four-year-old? Your seven-year-old? Your 27-year-old? Here's the thing that we don't realize, that the way that we demonstrate our love to our kids is the same way that God demonstrates his love to us, by spending time with us. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says this, and it says that Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Every single day, God would come down from heaven and spend time with his kids, Adam and Eve. But in this day in particular, Adam and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. As they matured and they ran into sin, they tried to be mindful when your kids are avoiding you. Something's going on. It's not just puberty. It's not just, oh, my. no, something's going on. What we don't realize, it's in God's presence, it's time with God that we experience his love. And here's just, the, I, I have a doctorate in pity parties. Nobody can have a pity party. I could throw a pity party. I mean, it, I mean, it's off the wall when I throw a pity party. Nobody cares. Okay, so I, I don't, again, I wanted to give him a minute to talk to see what happened. Um, I don't know how many more times I'm going to say this. <laughs> During the sermon review, like, nothing he's saying here is wrong in the sense of good parenting advice. Like it's all good. Spend time with your kids is great. You know, giving them positive affirmation is wonderful. Investing in what they like and helping them be better at it. All of that is great. <sighs> Being a biblical parent is, is different than just those things. Okay, nothing he said so far, if you take out Let's just think, if we were to take out all of the verses, all of the references that he's made thus far, right, and just present it in a way, maybe at a, um, at, a, at a school, like at a school meeting for parents, right, or at a parenting conference, right, just a, just a, just a parenting conference, totally disconnected from Christianity or the Bible, just a parenting conference, everyone there would say, yeah, these are all great things, because they don't... They don't automatically connect to the Bible. Parents, even, you know, even parents that are far from God, even parents that have no concept of, 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 of um, you know, a real right and wrong, right? Um, as far as scripture says, right? Um, they, they, they'll embrace these concepts. They like these concepts. Like, they're, like again, there's nothing wrong with it. Like, these concepts are great concepts. There's nothing distinctively Christian about these concepts, though. Right? I think here in a minute, he did read Genesis 3, where uh, you know they're walking in the garden, they hide from God because they've sinned against him. We'll see how he handles that passage here in a second, but, um, or if he even touches that. But again, yes, kids, hi I mean, kids hide from their parents when they've done something wrong. He alluded to the whole runaway story before. You broke the vase, so now you want to get away, right? Um so yeah, there's there's that there's that nature to be shameful and to hide. Okay, well, can we? I don't know. Maybe he'll get into this. I hope he does. Where does that come from then? Right? Where, where does that, like, from a biblical perspective, where does that come from? I don't know. Let's keep going. Also, I just want to apologize for the length of this video. I can already tell you it's going to be longer than normal. Um, but let, let's keep going. Cares about me. Nobody loves me. Nobody sees the sacrifice I'm making. <laughs> I was preparing this message. The Holy Spirit really led in my life. That if you feel underappreciated, you're deficient on your time with me. Because there's no way you could be spending time in the presence of God and not feel completely overwhelmed by the limitless love. Paul said, I pray that you would understand the height and the width and the depth of God's love for you. 
And here we have a God that so loved the world that he gave his son for the world. The world will never know it because they're not in his presence. And unless we spend time in God's presence, we're going to constantly ask everybody else, do you want me? Because we don't understand that the one who created us wants us more than anyone else. Second question is this, do you care about me? Do you care about me? That sounds like the exact same question. Do you want me? Do you care about me? That's the same thing. No, no, no. Want me is love. Care about me is are you committed to my future? Not just do you love me, but are you actually committed to where I'm going in the direction of my life? Here's what the Bible says having children like. It says it's like an arrow in the hands of a warrior. Just because just I push analogies way too far. Do you know an arrow in the hand is useless? Ugh, die. <laughs> Bulky. They ain't gonna do nothing. The only way an arrow is effective is if it's placed in a bow. And not only do you have to place it in a bow, but you have to direct that arrow somewhere. And you can't just direct it, but you have to retract it or restrain it or keep it from opportunities that it thinks it wants. Oh, you're preaching now. All my friends have their driver's license. Yeah, but you don't. All my friends get to go to sleepovers. Yeah, and the worst things happen to sleepovers. You can sleep over here. Anybody group one of them? If all your friends were to jump off a bridge, would you go with them? Come on now. I can give you dad quotes for days. Restrain. And then this is for all the helicopter moms. An arrow's useless until you release it. Can I just preach for a second? Don't let 18 be the first time you release your kids. Don't let college. Do you know why people turn up freshman years? I mean, lose their ever-loving mind. And leave it for me at Freedom Conference to cast out everything that you caught spring break freshman year. And I blame you because you're ratchet, but it's not just you. It's your parents. They didn't let you make one dollar decision until you turn 18. It's like, fly a little bit. They don't know how to fly. You ain't let them fly for 18 years. For a period, I'm going to begin you to make your own decisions where I'm close enough to catch you if you fall so I can teach you how to be released, how to be re Again, that's a really good point. What's so frustrating about this for me from a sermon, um, from a sermon review standpoint is that we're not using like, ah, we're not using any scripture here. And there's plenty of scripture to go off of as far as, uh, in, you know, in Exodus, for example, fathers uh, tell them about the Lord as you walk by the way, as you go about your day, like remind them of these things that, uh, that God has freed you from, right? I can't remember the exact verse. I preached on a father's one day, one year, but that, that, the whole idea is when, you're, when your sons and daughters ask you, why do we do these things? You say, because you tell them the story about how God freed you from slavery and captivity. This is the whole point of the passage in Exodus. Same thing when Paul talks about uh, how the family should be set up when he's uh, specifically talking in Ephesians, right? Um, like that would be a great passage on how to, how to love your family, how to lead your family, how to, how to disciple and grow kids. The Titus, chap, Titus chapter 2 that I briefly mentioned before, that'd be a great section to go off of because you're, you're showing how, how you're actually feeding down into the younger generation what you've already learned by godly characters. And interesting thing about Titus 2, Paul specifically talks about three different categories of people, how you're supposed to act and live, and then he gives them the why after each one of those things. And all of them point back to the fact that uh, so it can bring glory back to God. So it doesn't bring, uh, you know, dismay or reviling against the word of God because you're living in such such a way and you're, you're teaching people to live in such a way that um, it actually glorifies God. That would have been a good text. Um, I mean, there, there's parenting passages here. Um, it's not like there's a lack of that where you have to be like, well, the Bible doesn't talk about it. So we're just going to have to make our own thing here. Like that's, Oh, there, there, there's so much 
so much he could have used. We got we have we have twenty minutes left in this sermon. Obviously, we're going to one point five speed, so it's not going to take twenty minutes to get there. But <laughs> let's just say it one more time. Like it's just this isn't bad information, but this is not innately biblical information by and large. Now, again, he has, I mean, he has interjected scripture into here that is helpful, but um, nothing is making it distinctively different as far as Christian parents. So if I'm a Christian, I'm parenting my child, how I do it differently than someone that, that isn't a Christian would parent their child. Like these, these uh, concepts that he's putting out are applicable across the board. Now, is it going to be easier to do with the changed heart in Jesus? Yes. Have we recognized that point yet? No. Well, I mean, we might get there. We might get there. Maybe. I mean, I just, again, he, he's a great communicator. Nothing he said is, is bad information here. What's lacking is any biblical basis to make it distinctively Christian, though. Like, I could sit here and not be a Christian and still learn great tactics and topics and concepts about parenting, which is great. That's wonderful. But do I understand that there's like, there's a, there's a different part of that, that being the, the life-changing power of Jesus Christ on the cross in my place for my sin and his resurrection that then uh, allows the power of the Holy Spirit to come into me and change me? Like, that is a huge detail, <laughs> like a huge difference. Uh, that's missing from this particular sermon so far. Let's keep going. Restrained in how to be directed. We're called by God. It says, train up a child in Proverbs 22, 6, in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's your job as a parent to say, hey, here's the direction you need to go. There's a lot of baggage with that passage. And I think as pastors, when we preach on that and reference that, we need to do very good work as far as exegetically working through that to explain that it is not an if then. But there's a lot more I could say on that, but we won't talk about it. Let's keep going. Here's who your friends need to be. But more importantly, here's who your friends don't need to be. Can you teach you for a second? Can you teach you how to lose your kids? Don't know who their friends are. I'm not going to say let them have bad friends. I'm just saying that don't know who their friends are. Don't, don't know who's speaking into your life. The Bible says bad company corrupts all the work that you've done for 16 years. Where are you going? I'm going to get in trouble here. What are you majoring in? I'm taking out student loans. You can't tell me, like, well, listen, nothing student loans. Uh, you're going to want to make sure you're excited to pay it back because <laughs> you got a degree that's helping you pay it back. Come on, this is exciting, funny, and painful at the same time because someone's saying, man, if I had somebody to direct me at the moments that I needed it the most. And then the last thing is you have to restrain. The Bible says this. It says, do not withhold correction from a child. For if you beat him with a rod, he won't die. I'm proof. <laughs> you shall beat him with a rod, not with an ironing cord. Don't slap him in the face. Don't punch him in the chest. Come on now, we're preaching on both sides of the Bible right now. It says you will deliver his soul from hell. Can we talk about whoopings for a second? Some of y'all grew up in a... <laughs> Pastor, I got that covered. And I just tell you this right now, I'm never going to put my kids through what I've been through. One of the things that we do is we confuse one thing for another. Child abuse is not discipline. Some of you grew up in homes where you got slapped in the face, punched in the chest. You saw spousal abuse. And because of that, you've made an inner vow that's honestly not biblical. I will never hit my kid. Because you've erroneously connected abuse with discipline. Pastor, I'm not going to spank my kids because I don't want to teach my child violence. 
Okay, well, let's figure out what violence is. Here's what uh, Webster says. You know Webster was a Christian, right? I just lied, I couldn't find my notes. Okay, Webster, definition, violence is the use of physical force so as to injure, abuse, damage, or destroy. Here's what violence is, physical force. I got that, I'm never using physical force. Well, a doctor uses physical force with a scalpel. Can I talk about some of you crazy doctors? Y'all got saws. Y'all just be cutting people right down, and then clamps to hold them open. But we don't call that violence. We call that healing. Because there's a wound in there that I have to mend up. So the physical force doesn't dictate whether it's violence or discipline. It's the intention behind it. Am I doing this to injure, to harm, to destroy, or to cause damage? Or am I doing this to redirect you, to keep you from greater harm and greater pain and greater distraction on the other side? Here's a so I've got to give him props for talking about uh, as far as uh, whipping a child or spanking a child or whatever words you use for it. Because that's a touchy subject. As a pastor, especially of a church that's his size, which I think, I understand, if I understand it to be right, it's right around 2,000 uh, people plus whoever watches this online and you know like me um so that that i've got to give him i just respect the fact that he was willing to touch the subject and cover it and make a distinction like that because that is that is incredibly important and he's right on the money there are people that i know that have been through incredibly abusive situations that have gone like he said on the whole other side where they're like we're never going to spank our kids we're never going to i mean um, and I'm sure he's going to keep making that distinction. So again, like, I can't say this enough. This, this is good parenting information as a general rule. However, I do have to make the caveat. I could have closed my Bible a long time ago <laughs> and been, and it wouldn't have changed a thing, uh, as far as me learning anything from him right now, right? Like these are all great parenting principles, but there is nothing distinctively biblical about what he is saying. Now he is using, I do. And again, I I'll admit he, he is using a biblical text in order to make an important distinction in regards to, um, whipping or spanking again, depends on the words used for it. Um, so that that's again, helpful. Um, but altogether, like, would be, a, it's a side point, right? It's going back to what I said before, as far as topical, he's grabbing a verse to bring into some, to, to his message in order to make one of his points. And he'll let go of that verse here in a minute because we don't need it anymore. Um, so by and large, this, this isn't, this isn't a biblical message. It's a very helpful message. It's very um, good uh, information to people to have that especially grew up in maybe broken homes, uh, that grew up in homes that were um, that were maybe a bit abusive or maybe there was a parent gone or a parent absent from those homes. Like this is all great information to learn. But as I already said before, like there's not, like I admire that he's touching on, on a topic that it is such as, you know, as disciplining a child. Um, that most pastors simply, you know, won't make, won't be as careful to make the nuance on. Like, I appreciate that he's doing that, but I have to say again, if I, if we're looking at uh, the sermon review and saying, Hey, how's he doing exegetically working through the sermon? He's like, not, he's just not like, there's no biblical basis for this. He's just grabbing bits and pieces of what he likes and bringing it in. So there's nothing distinctively Christian here. And that's that, that I want you to hear me just as clear as day. This is great information. 
but this is not distinctively Christian, nor is it a sermon. This is very helpful talk. It's very helpful talk. Um, but we only have 15 minutes left and I don't, I mean, maybe he does, maybe, maybe he'll, he'll figure a way to bring it back around. But right now this is just, this is a parenting conference and it, not a distinctively Christian parenting conference. Let's keep going. Here's what the Bible says. It says, he who spares his rod hates his son. Oh, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. I memorized this verse as a child. Got this one right before the woman. Y'all remember this foolishness? This hurts you? A whole lot more than it hurts me. Yo, give me that stick. I was, let's test this out. You know what I used to hate? I used to hate the little dumb speeches after the whooping. <laughs> All right, that's enough now. How do you know? You didn't just get that whooping. <laughs> you all see what I'm feeling. <laughs> I told you, I hit her again. <laughs> Daddy's doing this because he loves you. It says it in the Bible. I hate the Bible. <laughs> Can I talk for a second? If you let your three-year-old run into traffic, they're going to lock you up. If your two-year-old keeps on touching a hot stove over and over and over again, they're going to lock you up because they're saying you're a bad parent. Why are you a bad parent? Because you're not enforcing boundaries. Literally what you're saying is, hey, this is where it's safe for you to operate in. It's safe for you to be home by 10 o'clock. You ain't home by 10? Don't be whipping no 16-year-old. It's, it's done. You lost. It's over. They looking you in the eye. <laughs> Whoop me. I wish you would. I remember one time my mom whooped me. I put four pairs of underwear on. <laughs> she just made me pull my pants down with my, my underwear. She goes, oh, I could have gone to Hollywood. Ah, 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 ah. She said, okay, pull your pants. I made one mistake, y'all. I laughed at the end. <laughs> I, I was like, I was so close. My dumb tail like, ha, ha. She said, what was that? <laughs> the worst woman. I mean, that woman got anointed from God. A golden ruler came down from it. Whoop! Again, this is a great example of how great. I mean, he is really good at communicating. But I've heard it said a lot of times, especially within the last couple of years, that um, you, know, you know, good communication does not equal good biblical preaching. And sometimes we put the quality of the preaching over the quantity or is that what it is the quantity of the preaching over the quality the point is we care more about if it's easy to listen to than if it's bible based so i'm sure i butchered that analogy but the point is that it's i mean again he's easy to hear it hasn't it hasn't felt like it's been an hour listening to him um but we've been sitting here for an hour and seven minutes almost now and we've got a lot of good information but no biblical information and I, I know you're probably tired of hearing me say that at this point, but I, I want you to see the difference. Like if I'm walking into this church for the first time, which that's the scenario. I've never heard this sermon before. Me and you walk into this church. We sit down. Look, I'm going to give him 10 out of 10 on communication. He's really good at it. As far as information, being able to communicate that information well, that information being good information, 10 out of 10. Like all of this is like this is all good parenting advice. But I can walk out of this church, which we're going to in about uh, 10 minutes here. And I don't like nothing distinctively Christian about this. I don't have to know Jesus to apply any of these things. Like, it was good advice. It's good advice. Let's keep going. Somebody say, just preach the word. 
Here we go. I can't. Seriously, I've got to learn this one. Y'all know God whoops you, right? And one of the things that people don't understand is because you have a father who loves you, he's going to whoop you. But because you don't know that the word of God says that God whoops you, you think it's the enemy. So you're praying against it, you're fasting against it, you're rebuking it, you're calling it the enemy, and God says, that ain't the enemy, that's me. Bend over. <laughs> I told you to stop being so prideful. I told you to surrender to my will for your life. I told you to be kind to your wife. As the Bible says in Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 5, and have you forgotten the encouraging, the encouraging word of God? God spoke to you as his children. He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. So don't laugh when he whoops you, because it gets worse. And don't give up when he corrects you, for the Lord disciplines those he and he punishes each one he accepts. As you endure the divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own child. Whoever heard of a, ch of a child who was never disciplined by its father? Well, you should come to 2021. It's a different world out here. If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? God says, listen, if you love your child, whoop them and you'll save them from hell. Well, that's a lot, Pastor. Like, you're just going right into this one, aren't you? I got one message about whoopings a year, so here we go. God says, but before you learn to submit to God, you learn to submit to your parent. And if you don't learn how to submit your will to your parent, it's going to be really difficult to understand that you have to submit your will to anyone. Pastor, I wasn't whooped as a kid, and look how I turned out. My point exactly. Uh, God says, listen, I'm going to direct you. Not all pain is evil. Not all pain is the enemy. Let's just pause for a moment. What's some pain you've been experiencing in your life? Is it the enemy? Or is it God trying to keep you from crossing the boundary? Last thing is this. You come and play with Landis. Like, do you want me? Do you care about me? Do you like me? These sound very similar, but there's a major difference. Before we get to that point, I do want to say something that I think is important from the last little bit that he said there. Now, again, we've talked about this before. I know for sure in the Kevin DeYoung sermon, I, I touched on it. Um, but pastors are going to approach their congregations in one of two ways, right? So there's two primary preaching methods. We've covered that at the beginning of this sermon. It's either your text is your base and you work everything out of that text, or it's topical and you grab verses that you need to grab to sustain your point. There's also two ways to preach to your congregation. If you're a pastor, for example, and that is going to be, you assume that the majority of the people in your church are believers, right? So it, it comes back to how you view the church. Is the church a place to act as a wide net to bring in a bunch of unbelievers and get them saved there? Or is the church a body of believers to equip and then to send out? And obviously you're going to have a mix of a little bit, no matter what church you go to, even if you believe the church is a body of believers that you teach to send out, you're assuming that they're, if you're teaching them to send them out, they're going to bring some people in. So there's always going to be, even if you're preaching to a congregation that you, you assume to be uh, uh, believers that you're teaching and training, you also have to at least acknowledge that there's probably a sprinkling of people in there that don't know who Jesus is and their lives aren't transformed by who he is yet. Um, so there's that. The other side is obviously assuming that, you know, the wide base of your congregation isn't saved. So you're going to preach messages geared toward them with the idea that there's a sprinkling of believers in there, but the idea is that they're there to help and to volunteer and to make sure that um, maybe these people, there's questions or answered if they have them, right? So that's, that's the basic idea. I kind of get the feel that Stephen here ha, ha, approaches it as the people he's talking to are believers that are being trained to send out. That's kind of the feel I've got. 
there's only a couple indications I can pick up to make that assumption. The first one is back at the very beginning of the sermon where he said that if as believers, we are children of God. So there's this seems to be this assumption um, that uh, the people in his congregation are believers, that they are, their lives have been transformed by Jesus. Uh, there's a few other things he said throughout the sermon as far as the direct things he said to um, them about verses, uh, the verses he has used, is the assumption that they understand and they know what they mean. So there, there's this assumption perhaps that the people he's talking to are primarily believers. If that's the case, um, I can see where I could be, maybe I'm making a leap here to say that, you know, these uh, principles, when I've said over and over again that these principles are distinctively um, good, good advice, but they're not overtly Christian, right? Um, if his assumption is that he's talking to a church primarily full of believers, I can see where he wouldn't feel the need to necessarily um, make all of those connections. Because if my assumption is if I'm talking to my church, right, if I'm preaching to the church and I'm throwing out uh, principles and I, my assumption is that they're all believers, then I'm assuming that they're going to apply these based upon their changed heart and their changed mind. Um the, the danger I see in doing that is so far, and maybe he does close it with this. I mean, he's got about 10 minutes left that he could theoretically kind of tie this in a nice bow, and I hope he does. But um, theoretically, he could wait till the end here and say, hey, if you feel like these principles are difficult to do, or these are like things that you've never experienced before, um, let me invite you into a relationship with Jesus Christ um, that can transform your heart to set you on a path in order to be able to live out these things that we've talked about today. So he, if he's pushing toward that point with the assumption that the majority of his congregation is believers, and then he ends with something along those lines, I mean, that for me, that would be, that would almost kind of justify this sermon. Um, again, methodology wise, I don't like how he's approached it, but again, that's methodology. Uh, I've not heard a lot about Jesus transforming power in anyone's heart. Um, again, if he's, talking to primarily people he thinks is believers. You're not going to mention that as much, but you're still going to mention that. Um, so let's, I'm going to try to be quiet <laughs> as much as I can for the rest of this little bit that he's got, that he's going to talk, see what he says, and then we'll tie this up. Do you want me as just, do you even notice me? Do you care about me as, do you care about the future of my life, where I'm going? But do you like me as, is there anything special about me? That's different from everybody. Do you notice me, anybody, anything else more than other people in the world? Remember, you have the enemy chirping in the air. You're average. You're forgettable. You're not special. Proverbs 25, 2 says this. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. If I had time to preach this. God has hidden gifts, talents, greatness, genius inside of each and every one of us. However, it is literally just under 10 minutes before the sermon ends. And the music is playing. If you've watched or listened to any of my other sermon reviews, it is like, it is on, on time every time. Anywhere between eight and ten minutes before the end of the sermon, music just magically starts playing. Pavlov's dogs bells start ringing. Like, it's, I don't did did everybody have a meeting and be like, yo, ten minutes before the end of the sermon, we're gonna start playing some like low low music that builds into like a worship, and there's gonna be like this crescendo of the message. Like, did I miss that meeting? Because I feel like there was definitely a meeting. However, greatness and genius that's not surrendered to God brings destruction and damage. So he says, I'm going to hide it in you, but I'm going to hide it so deep that you can only find it when you're surrendered and you're seeking me. 
one of the greatest responsibilities of a parent is to discover what God has hidden in your child. The gifts, the talents, the ability that God has called you to call out, to affirm, and to develop. And unfortunately, sometimes as parents, we get so obsessed with what our kids are not. Why couldn't you just, why couldn't you just, because we want clones of ourselves. Fully understanding that we're not clones of our parents. How about we just steward the gift that God's given us in this child and begin to, man, there's a way that you have with words. I know you're always talking back and you're always arguing with me. You think you have a way with words. Let me just talk for a second. I have a way with words. I was never disrespectful. I was one of the most smart mouth, always had something to say, had to have the lights work. Here's the deal, because the gifts of God, before they've been sanctified, can actually manifest in sin. And as parents, we have to be mature enough to see through the rebellion and understand that when that is surrendered to God, oh, that's going to be a tool that releases you to the destiny that God has for you. Here comes the enemy whispering again. Book of Matthew, he's talking to the son of God, Jesus. And he says, if you are the son of God, attacking Jesus, if you are, turn that stone to bread. If you are, cast yourself down and I'll give you the entire, he said, if you are that you say you are, I'll give you all of this. Abby, can I just talk for a second? I know you're 14, but if you were a man, you would sleep with her. I know you all that, but, but if you're really, you'll hit this. The enemy is going to be in your child's ear if you're cool, if you're man, if you're gorgeous, if you're this, if you're, he doesn't have new tactics. He's doing the, if you're this, if you're that. And do you know why Jesus didn't surrender to the ifs of the enemy? Because 40 days earlier, when Jesus was getting baptized, the whole sky cracked open and God the Father said, that's my boy. And in him, I am well pleased. Jesus had not done one miracle. He had not turned water into wine where he's run dead and he had not hung on the cross yet, but yet God the Father was still pleased. And because he had the affirmation of his father echoing in his ear, when the enemy came in and said, if, 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 Jesus says, it is written because I know what my dad said about me. Okay, that's a bit of a stretch. But again, that's a whole different subject as far as uh, the Trinity and um, Jesus' sinless nature. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot in that. Um, so let's keep going. Do your children have so echoing in their ears, my dad and my mom said I'm handsome and I'm beautiful and I'm articulate and I'm gifted and I'm anointed and I have a great future so you can keep your ifs because I know who I am. Here we are as adults. If I could just get this net worth, if I could just get this degree, if this influential person will just accept me, if this, if, 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 if. Because so many of us are living without the parenting that God's called us to give. Pastor, how do I give something that I've never had? Here's what you have to understand. This might not be theologically correct. I'm going to hang on the edge of this one here. Your earthly family was always your second family. Not your first. Yeah, that's your biological mom and dad. But you always belong to God. And he just gave you to your parents to steward you. But he never fully released you. And he said, regardless of what they've said over you, here's what I say over you. That you're mine. I want you. That's why you're a chosen generation. He said, you're royalty. I don't feel like royalty. Well, your daddy's a king, which makes you royalty. He said you're holy. Okay, so here is where we're going to get a little shady, okay? Um, now, he, he gave me a lot of hope at the beginning of the sermon because he was talking about as believers, you are uh, in, adopted into the family of God. So that, when I hear that initially... It means that, okay, well, there are believers and not believers. There are people in the family of God and people not in the family of God. So at the end here, I mean, he, he's, he's talking about um, parents that, you know, need to, to parent their kids well, understand that, you know, they're loved, they're valued by, by God. 
Um, but we're not talking. So at this point here, I'm not sure like what target he's shooting at because the assumption he seems to be making is that everybody in that room just needs to be reminded that God's their father, which is great because you do need to remember that God is your father, but you also have to remember until you're adopted into the family through belief in who Jesus Christ is and his life, burial, resurrection, all that whole deal that we talk about through the rest of the New Testament, right? Um, there is an outside of the family of God part. There is sin and reconciliation and what that looks like and all of that that's tied up in there. So the assumption that he seems, and I don't, I don't want to speak for him, but the assumption he seems to be making here is that we're all defaultly part of the family. We just have to, we just have to know it. We have to be told it, right? So you have to be reminded that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But if we were to look at the context of 1 Peter chapter 2, we would see that this is Peter reminding believers, those that believe in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those that have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit because of that. that those that are being sanctified to be more and more like Jesus because of the Holy Spirit and their belief in who Jesus is. Like there, there's, there's, I want to say conditions here, but there, there are, there are things that have happened in a person's life up to this point before Peter says this. So just if I'm, you know, Joe Blow in the audience, what I'm hearing, if it's just me and you, we've walked into this sermon because somebody said, Hey, check out destiny church. And you've, you know, you don't know who Jesus is. You know, you've done some messed up stuff, but you want to be a better parent. And you heard they were doing a, you know, a series on relationships. So you walk in and you're sitting there. What I'm hearing is that, oh, I'm a chosen, I'm a chosen person. God loves me. God has a special destiny for me. But I'm not hearing any part of the, the thing before about the actual heart change, the actual mind change, the actual difference that actually then brings forth the ability to do the things that he's talked about this entire sermon. I don't think we're going to get there. We have like literally four minutes left in this sermon, but maybe he talks about it. I'm just saying up to this point, this is concerning. Like this is probably one of the more concerning things because he says some helpful things before that maybe had you buy in. And now we're being handed uh, the salvation without the repentance, if that makes sense. You may not be living holy right now, but your identity is holiness. You said, and you're special to me. And I made you to proclaim to the world my praises. He said, I've called you out of darkness. This is for someone. It doesn't matter how trapped in secret sin you are at this very moment. There is still a call of God in your life. He said, I've called you out of darkness and into my marvelous light. You know, they say you could cry over spilt milk. Sometimes you should cry over spilt milk, like the milk really got spilled. But regardless of our past, we have a father that has secured our future. And he's saying, if you would lean into me. Through how, how? Everything the enemy stole from your family. And I'll give you everything that you need to provide it for your future. Mm. Even though you didn't have it in your past. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we're grateful, we're thankful. God, that we get to say, dear father. And sometimes we just use it as a salutation of the idea that you consider us your children. God, we're grateful that you. You want us, you care for us. You set each and every one of us aside because we're special unto you. God, I pray that you'd make that real to us. Church, with your eyes closed and your head bowed, if you could pray this prayer with me, say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Just give God a moment to make this time, to make this message personal to you. Each and every one of us are a child of God. 
but some of us are estranged. Some of us, it's been a long time since you've been around your father. And you don't even know if he wants you back. I'll tell you right now, there's nothing God wants more than to have you be a part of his family. He literally shed his blood so that you could be his own. So if you're in here, if you're in Baltimore, if you're watching online, right now you just feel alone. You feel like you've always been in it by yourself. Today God is saying, will you step into my family? Will you let me be your father? If that's you right where you're sitting, can you pray this prayer with me? Say, Father God. Say, Father God. Thanks for wanting me. Thanks for seeing me. Thanks for loving me so much that you gave your son, Jesus, to shed his blood so that I can live forever. Today, I'll give you all that I am. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my Father. And use me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let me just point out why this is this would be incredibly confusing to somebody that had just walked in. So we're paying a prayer here, apparently, or we're invited to pray a prayer in which we say thank you for letting Jesus or having Jesus shed his blood. The first question is why? Like why, why, like there's no explanation to why that was necessary. Like why did Jesus have to shed his blood? What's that about, right? We haven't explained it up to this point at all. at all and then we're asking him to let us be a part of his family but we've just been told that we're already a part of his family we've been told that he he made a way for us but then we weren't told what that way was so he's he's made that way okay, okay well first of all what way like what to become part of his family that you've said we're already a part of and if he did make a way just just to be part of the family like, wh why are we estranged from the family then? Is it, we're not going to church? Are we estranged from the family because we're not going to church? Or we don't read our Bible enough? We don't pray enough? Like, that's why we're exchanged, exchanged. I can't say the word. That's why we're not part of the family? Like, do you see how the, it's just confusing? So, um, <laughs> the last... Last 10 minutes of this are actually the most frustrating for me because up to this point, like it was all really good, just basic advice. But then we get to the end and we just, I mean, look, I don't know this guy, but let's say I walked to his church and I, this is the only thing I ever hear from him, which will probably be the only thing I ever hear from him. And then I walk out of the church. I am, uh, if, if I'm not been to church for a while or if I've not been to church ever, I'm incredibly confused, especially by the last 10 minutes, like the first 45 were great advice. I'll take that and run with it, right? The last 10 minutes are incredibly confusing. Because that none of that makes sense at all. Like, none of, the, the, not, the dots don't even connect. Like, so there's not a whole lot I can even disagree with because it doesn't make any sense. I don't understand the words you're using. Now, from my perspective, right, do a lot of sermon reviews. I understand a good portion of theology. That's not to brag. It's just saying that, hey, like, I, I understand what he's going for here. But from my perspective, like this, this is dangerous because for the first 45 minutes, he was very relatable, gave very good advice. And that's going to, that's going to garner one of two reactions. The first being that I just buy into what he says here because everything before he said was really good and it is applicable and I can see how it can be applied to my life as a parent. So I buy into this whole idea that I'm already part of the family of God. I just walked away for a little bit and Jesus, you know, not even Jesus, God just welcomes me back in um, and we're good now. Or 
The second thing is all the really, it was really good advice. And apparently there's this Christianese thing at the end that I don't understand, but whatever, I'll probably come back because he seems like he gives practical advice. And then apparently I might eventually pray this prayer, and become a, a believer in the family, the family of God. But there's no explanation of what that looks like, why that, why that's important. So no, I guess at the end of the day, I wouldn't recommend this guy based on this entire, if, if, I, if all I'm doing is basing on this sermon, uh, no, uh, Stephen Chandler is a great communicator, horrible exegete, very similar to a Stephen Furtick, though uh, Stephen Furtick actually uses more scripture, uh, not correctly, but he uses more scripture. Um, I'm sure Stephen's a great guy. He seems like a really friendly individual, really, really like to get along. Not questioning, because we get this sometimes, I'm not questioning his Christianity or his love for Jesus. I just don't, like he didn't mention it a lot at all, actually. Like it was like a, it was like a, like a afterthought. It was like you went to dinner at a restaurant and the Jesus part was like that mint they give you at the end. It was like, oh yeah, here you go. Like it, <laughs> anyway, this was not, this was not good. The advice was good as generic advice to how to raise kids, but this was a trash of a sermon. And I would not recommend you get any biblical advice from this man based solely on this sermon. Um, I'm sure he's a cool fellow. I'm sure he's very nice. Um, but that wasn't a sermon. Anyway, um, I need to, the next week, this next week's sermon needs to be from somebody that I'm like, yes, we can definitely recommend them. I need to look up some of those sermons because we just had a bunch in a row that were just... Not great. So uh, thank you guys for watching, subscribing. Uh, thank you guys for suggesting people such as Stephen Chandler. I appreciate that. And uh, next week, we'll be back. So thank you for liking, commenting, subscribing. I'll talk to you later.